Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturdays. Hi, this is Anna David. You are listening to After Party Pod, and it is being hosted by a girl who just recorded an intro and an outro without plugging her microphones in. So this is my second go at it. Microphones seem to be plugged in, so hopefully you'll be hearing this. This is a podcast all about addiction and recovery, which you know because you found it. Maybe you don't know it if you, if you were like, oh, maybe this is about where to find after parties. I'm so sorry. Maybe you should listen anyway. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, which is a website I edit, along with RehabReviews.com, which is the world's largest resource for rehab reviews. If you or a loved one is looking for treatment, go there. I also host another podcast. It's called You've Got Issues with Anna David, where I talk to a guest about his or her pettiest issue. There's been some crossover. I've definitely had guests on that podcast that I've also had on this podcast. I'm done talking about me because this uh, guest is terribly exciting, not only because his story is incredible, but his recovery is incredible. And that's not always the combination yet you see. This happened very quickly and very excitingly, even though that's not really a word, which is I was, uh, somebody mentioned this guy's name two weeks ago to me and said, hey, uh, do you know Khalil Rafati? Um, in Sun Life Organics. I said, no. And they said, he just published a book. It's really good. Took that into, you know, that went into my cerebral cortex or, you know, whatever part of my brain that goes in. Randomly, through editing rehab reviews, I was emailing with the owner of Riviera Recovery. We were emailing back and forth. Then last Thursday, and when I say last Thursday, this is going to be released in a few weeks, so a couple Thursdays ago, I see this Sunday Styles no, sorry, not Sunday, because it was on a Thursday. You know how New York Times does a Thursday style section? And it was on Khalil. And it explains his whole story, which he's going to get into in far more articulate and detailed a way than I can here. But it is an insane story about bottoming out, rebuilding a life, and then rebuilding it, it again. So now I'm going to give you Khalil Rafati. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my god, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Like I said, so happy that you came in here to do this. I didn't, I didn't expect to get you. You know, coincidentally, Jose had emailed me, what was it, two weeks ago. Jose, let's just point out, is sitting here with us. Yeah. Very silent. Yeah. Which seems interesting because he doesn't seem like a silent fellow normally. He's not. 
He's not. He's definitely not a silent fellow. Wait, hold the mic a little bit closer sure, to your mouth. Sure. And I just heard about you from Ross at Rebos. Oh, cool. Yeah. He mentioned you because I've been talking to him about stuff. He mentioned you like three weeks ago, and yeah. I was like, "What?" Great guy from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Great guy. And then I, you know, I have a Google alert for addiction recovery, and this story pops up. It was last Thursday's Sunday Styles. Is that right? The Walter. Yeah. So New York Times. Uh, style section yeah the thursday yeah. yeah so that pops up and i'm like oh this is the guy he's talking about and then i'm riveted by the story and then because of these google alerts it pops up 64 more times in the yeah. next 24 hours it's gone crazy and i email jose thinking he's gonna go thinking i must be confused frankly because the coincidence seemed so great that i was like riviera recovery no i must be confused and then you write back and you're like sure let's do it so here we are yeah he got well he got a hold of me and he was just like let, let's just go let's uh, he's like i'll literally i'll drive you like this will be great i'm i mean what am i gonna say no of course i love this guy well okay I mean, he's carrying the torch he's he's the owner now of riviera recovery and i started riviera recovery and it was very near and dear to my heart and now he's doing even clearly a better job than i was not that i didn't i didn't do a bad job i just he's doing an amazing job of running something that i started literally on a shoestring and a prayer and um you know, we used to get high together. I mean, are we allowed to talk about this stuff? I mean, you're encouraged to talk about oh, this okay. stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. So, I so mean, we, okay. Yeah. So, okay, let's get into your story because sure. it's a crazy one. It's, yeah, it's crazy. And you're like my 112th episode, I think. So for me to say that, I've interviewed 111 other addicts with crazy stories. So okay. it yeah. means something. So um, let's just sort of walk any, you know, listener who isn't familiar with your story yet through what happened. You bottomed out in Los Angeles. Tell me what happened before that. Well, I mean, I, I, I want to paraphrase because uh, I don't want to bore people to death, but I was born in Toledo, Ohio to a uh, Polish woman who immigrated here when she was in her 30s and to a, uh, a man born in Jerusalem, a Palestinian man. So I had immigrant parents. That's something that Jose and I had in common. That's mm -hmm. another thing that we bonded over other than crack and heroin. Mm -hmm. But um, so I had immigrant parents pretty rough childhood, definitely felt weird and, and ostracized. And I, you know, when people share in 12 step meetings, like, you know, oh, I felt like I never fit in uh, when I was a kid, I didn't fit in. Right. It wasn't that I felt that I didn't fit in. Like my dad was like, you know, this crazy Muslim guy. And my mother was this poor little Polish woman, frail. And um, everything in Ohio, at least where I lived, was very much mom, dad, dog, cat, dinner at six. They looked like the Brady Bunch. They had, you know, matching pajamas and they had station wagons and they went camping. And then, you know, my house on the weekend, I think both of my parents just recreated their own war Trauma. zones. Yeah. No brothers or sisters. There was a brother until I was, there was a brother until I was seven or eight. But he, once he left, he was gone. I only saw him one more time. And then there's brothers or sisters in Chicago, Ramallah. There was a sister in Syria. There's a sister in Canada. There's some... Are these half siblings or full siblings? No, all half. Right. Half or step. I don't know what the correct terminology is, but like and then there's even like one woman in Louisiana, I think her name is Sherry, who who just continues to try and build some sort of a relationship with me because she claims that she's my dad's daughter and she does look a lot like me and a lot like my dad, but I don't know. I kind of learned from my mom growing up that like the past is the past and, and to really survive 
you need to let it go at some point. So I don't really have any interest in, in, and I don't know any of those others. I know, I know the one sister in Canada, she's awesome. I knew her a little bit when I was, when I was super small, like three years old, four years old, but for the most part, no, my long winded answer is there was really no other siblings Mm -hmm. other than my, my brother who left when I was eight. And since the book has come out in this flurry of publicity, have you heard from many others who are claiming to be related? Uh, no. I mean, I was sort of expecting that. I mean, I'm what I am getting is what I also expected is like people saying like, hey, I filed for bankruptcy, but it won't forgive my student loan, so will you please pay them off? Or Like people you don't know? No, I don't have no idea who these people are. I'm, like, I'm, getting, I'm getting messages from Iran, messages from Turkey, messages from South America. Many of them, most of them, incredibly positive, incredibly touching. A lot of them, strangely enough, not from drug addicts or alcoholics, but from people that are just kind of having a, a, a tough time at life. And, and they said that, like, wow, your story really, really inspired me. But yeah, I'm definitely getting, I, I thought I was going to get like, you know, hey, I'm your daughter, <laughs> right. I'm your son, right. I haven't gotten any of those yet. Well, <laughs> is there a risk of that? I mean, it sounds like no. your using was pretty much not a lot of like random action going on. Like it was yeah. about shooting up in alleys kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, public restrooms were my shooting galleries for the most part. And um, I really... Yeah, I was very intent on killing myself, destroying myself, blotting out any any part of me that felt like me, and so um, there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't partying. I, I I shot heroin and smoked crack alone in a bathroom. Sometimes with other people. I mean, I definitely, you know, Dwayne and I shared several hundred thousand dollars worth of drugs, and Jose and I definitely, for some reason, I remember like getting high in a bus. Why were we in a bus? They were at a Leonard Skinner concert okay. for anyone who can't hear, yeah. which is interesting. We should mention Dwayne is also sitting here with us. Dwayne so, is, yeah. yeah. Dwayne is, Dwayne is uh, um, without mentioning any names, but Dwayne is newly sober. So, oh, first time? Yeah. Well, and so you basically brought people who can, if you're lying, say, that's not true, if they remember, which uh, they probably you won't. You remember. Oh, yeah. He, Dwayne saw more of my using oh, yeah. than, than anyone. Better than that little shack. We lived in a, we lived in a, uh, I guess a garage with no running water and no electricity, but we ran an extension cord from the house up, up the hill. And we had, we had two beds, but for whatever reason, often shared a bed. I'm not sure if you remember that. I'm not sure why we shared a bed. Just sort of passing out, like nodding off, well, right? No, I mean, he's 100% straight. I'm 100% yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah, nothing like that. As far as everyone knows. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I often remember us sort of, yeah, being in one bed, and there was an old television and an old VCR, and there was one tape, and it was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, mm-hmm. and it would it once it got to the end, it would rewind itself and play. So we were we were kind of stuck in this bizarre. We didn't have lights, so it would be lit by Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We would go to the bathroom in plastic bags or just in the bushes and. There was a bathroom that you chose to just use. There to wasn't shoot up? a bathroom. We didn't have. Oh. We were li- literally living in a shack, like a, right. a, like a, a a shed. The floor was all busted up, and I was fighting with people who were trying to help me get sober. I mean, fighting them like f you, and you know, I'm fine, and you know, I never, I didn't see anything wrong with that. That yeah. that you know, God and my parents gave me this incredible life, and and some abilities. 
and I just threw it all away so I could live in a in a, a shack because well, I thought it well, was. Where was this shack in L.A.? It was in Malibu. This crazy hippie family that had seven daughters. Was it seven daughters? I think it was yes. Yeah, seven daughters. These crazy English guy, lovely people. They were really into this one guru, and they thought it was neat to have these musician types crashing on their property. And, and they did. They know what you guys were up to. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So how did you go from, so you're in Toledo, Ohio, and had you done drugs there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, done drugs there, mostly drinking, mostly blackout drinking, starting at a very, very early age. Some pills, smoking pot, dealing pot, but uh, nothing really heavy with the, with the drugs. I, it, I mean, to be honest with you, I had such bad panic and anxiety attacks from 12 to 19 that... I was kind of scared of drugs, and mm-hmm. pot definitely made things worse. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to make things worse because all the cool kids were doing it. So I wanted it. I wanted, it. and I tried many times, but I always ended up like hearing voices or thinking everyone was talking about yeah. me or hearing my heart beating, and it would it would make the panic attacks last for days sometimes. So right. I was pretty against the drugs for me. Yeah, yeah, but then something changed. Well, I started getting in a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of trouble, and I came out to California to get away from all that trouble. Trouble with, because of drinking? No, not so much. More like with the law and more like the stuff I was doing Stealing on the side. Stealing and stuff like that? Dealing? A little, little bit more creative than that, but I don't want to incriminate anybody. But okay. I was involved. I was involved with some. I was involved with some different people that did different things, and mm-hmm. I would do some sort of odds and ends mm-hmm, in there, mm-hmm. so to speak. So you got out of there. I got out of there. Came to California, did pretty well, being industrious, survivor, Polish, Arab, strong, not so bright, but, you know, able to work physically. Like, yeah, I, I, I did okay. I maintained for a while. Drinking was sporadic, but pretty, when I drank, it was a mess. It mm-hmm. was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and always, when I would drink, it was always days and weeks and sometimes months of regret. Like, mm-hmm. whoa. That's awful. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about like the cool stories where you wake up two towns over and you're laying next to a, a heavy college girl, you know, <laughs> 250 pound softball player. I'm, you know, those are the funny stories. But, you know, then there's other stories that you don't really share with people. T- t- stuff like that. Right. Um, 20, mid 20s, I'd say, um, Started hanging out with a couple of different people that were going to raves. I got mm-hmm. invited to a rave, and uh, it was actually Haley's sister, but we're not going to go into that. Mm-hmm. But Haley's sister and her friend, Christy, gave me my first hit of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And I was scared taking it. I was like, whoa, this is weird. I hope I don't freak out, whatever. I remember drinking a little bit of Jägermeister to sort of offset the effects. And, uh, and that, that uh, I really, really liked it. And then I went to a concert a couple weeks later. Um, Jane's Addiction had just got back together. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I did some heavier ecstasy without anesthetizing myself with Jägermeister first. And I took a couple other pills with it. And when that came on, that was my baptism. That was my right. moment of like, I am going to feel like this for the rest of my life. This is incredible. I mean, it, it, it was truly, of course, this is all pre-heroin, but it mm-hmm. was truly the greatest I had ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. It was an explosion of uh, just a mind orgasm of, of serotonin and dopamine and all these chemicals swirling around unnaturally in my midbrain. And I felt 
like I felt like uh, like I was Jesus Christ. I mean, I felt. But what about the next two days later? Did you? I didn't pay the price. I didn't care. You, did, but your depression wasn't bad afterwards. The next morning, I felt so shitty that all I could think about was how can I get enough of this to where I can sell it so I can afford it. Because remember, it was like twenty dollars a pill. Mm-hmm. Like this is not a sustainable habit here. Mm-hmm. It's not like my cigarettes, which were like two eighty nine at the local AMPM. And you know, daily ecstasy use is is relatively uncommon, even in you know people I know today. It is, and it definitely wasn't daily in the beginning, but once people started introducing me to things like, well, you take Xanax the next day, and then you should try ketamine with it, and have you ever hippie flipped or candy flipped, or have you ever tried- What's you know, that? I don't know. Where you take are. ecstasy and mushrooms, you take ecstasy and acid together. Uh-huh. Um, and then we you know, we bought the Terrence McKenna book about psychedelics, and we started hiking up to waterfalls, and like, there was this, you know, there was a, definitely a honeymoon period with mm-hmm. drugs. It mm-hmm. was definitely like- a period, I'm not gonna lie, there was a period in my life where I very much enjoyed drugs. I'm gonna go so far, and I haven't said this yet on anything, but I think it's appropriate to say it here. I believe that there were actually real medicinal value to incorporating things like psilocybin and MDMA into my life. And I believe in a controlled environment for someone who is like coming back from the war or mm-hmm. someone who's been severely traumatized as a child and other modalities of therapy are simply not working, PTSD in particular, depression, um, maybe even extreme examples of couples that just aren't getting along. I wholeheartedly believe that in a controlled environment, in a controlled setting, doctor prescribed, I believe there can be great value to trying that as a last means, as a last resort. And I know that they're having amazing results all over the world, and they're actually starting to do it here in the United States as well at, some, at, at several of the major universities. They're using psilocybin, acid, you know, MDMA to treat people for PTSD and depression. Do you feel like it helped you then? Is that I what do. You're saying? I, I do, yeah. I feel like there were certain barriers because I was full of anger. I was full of piss and vinegar. I was someone that liked to dump tables over when I was drunk or try to start fights with everybody, which was dumb because I wasn't tough. Mm-hmm. Like I always wanted to fight people when I drank. And mm-hmm. like, you know, it never ended well. And truthfully, I had no business starting fights. It's mm-hmm. like, not that good at fighting, mm-hmm. not that tough. <laughs> so, but anyway. Uh, Especially because weren't you like 100 pounds back then? Eventually, mm-hmm. eventually. More like 130, 140 during the, 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 the honeymoon ecstasy club drug period. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it's progressive. Mm-hmm. And I was not doing it in a controlled environment and it was not doctor prescribed. I mean, look, if you get your leg amputated, Opiates are going to be great, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, truthfully, probably life-saving. Mm-hmm. But if you don't get your leg amputated and your boyfriend dumped you and you decide to start taking a handful of Vicodin every day, you're going to find yourself in harm's way very soon, I would imagine. What about ayahuasca? You know, that's often used for trauma. It, it's huge right now. Most, I'm going to say this, most of the people that I'm close with that are in recovery are either going to do it or have done it. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, please. What's the fucking point? I mean, what, what, like, what, my life is amazing. I employ a bunch of people. I got great friends. I'm able to help someone. You know, we went to a meeting on his first day, like day one, off the fucking boat, straw still in his hair. Like, 
we went to a meeting mm -hmm. and no one benefited more than me so like but not everybody in sobriety is living that life not everybody feels that way you know i hear from those people all the time i mean yeah i i don't know rich and i talked about this ritual and i talked mm -hmm. about this pretty extensively like i'm not going to say that there's probably not the, the a strong possibility that i could benefit from doing ayahuasca maybe mm -hmm. have some sort of a spiritual breakthrough mm -hmm. um going and working at a soup kitchen could also bring incredible value to my life going and volunteering at a at a burns victim unit bringing them toys at christmas would probably also bring great value and i may have a spiritual awakening um, when I went to India or Indonesia and I was going to Hindu temples and all these different temples, actually, Baha'i temple, Hindu temples, Krishna temples, and I was, they would allow me to do their ceremonies and do their dances and, and you know, wear the ashes and burn the incense and all that. I had mystical experiences over there as well mm -hmm. without, without ayahuasca. I've had sex that was transcendent. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing with ayahuasca. All those other things that I just talked about, done safely, obviously, will bring great value to my life. And maybe ayahuasca would too. What if I'm wrong? Right. What if I freak the fuck out and have to go get Xanax or have to drink to come down? Or, or what if it just fucking fries me? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty wound up and weird as it is. Like, what if, you know, what if, what if it like fried my brain or like... And even if it didn't, even if I knew for a fact that I would have this amazing religious experience, I have amazing religious experiences when I'm in pigeon pose or shavasana, when I'm in yoga. And I have amazing religious experiences when I go visit my mom, this woman who I put through hell, and I look at the house that I bought her, and I go and I like buy her nice stuff. I, t I drive my mom from Toledo up to Ann Arbor and just get literally like two shopping carts stacked to the ceiling because she's really into health food. Mm -hmm. And like that's, that's a high that, that I'm after. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in any of that other shit. And anybody out there who's doing it and you're getting great benefits from it, God bless you, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I don't, you know. Yeah, I mean, my thing is, you know, it's it's not for me, and I would probably say it's not for any person who wants to maintain sobriety, my opinion. But I was curious your take on people who are not thriving in sobriety, which you got into, which is go be of service. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, a major, a ma you know, something that had never occurred to me before I got sober. So basically, let's just like get you, so so you guys are in this weird cabin, uh, kind of a cabin, and um, I wish it was a cabin. That would have been an upgrade. You were like in literally, a shed we lived in, a in Malibu, shed. though, so you maybe had a good view. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we lived in a shed, and I had, uh, for whatever reason, I like to go downtown. I like to go to the Cecil and the Rosalind Hotel, and I used to like to disappear for days at a time, and eventually, I kind of just merged with that for mm -hmm. the most part. I mm -hmm. spend, uh, spent way, way more time down there than I should have. And things got really weird very fast. And um, I was shooting. He was not. He, mm -hmm. You know, he was smoking. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that that doesn't wind you up in the same place. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I just got to the finish line a little quicker. Mm -hmm. And I was able to surrender. And by surrender, I mean joining the winning team. Mm -hmm. Not like groveling and getting on my knees surrendering, although I did get on my knees, but in 
to reach towards my divinity, which I think is the best place and the easiest place that you can reach towards your divinity is on your knees. But things got dark very fast. Uh, I was sharing needles, fairly convinced I had AIDS, not even HIV. I think I just jumped right into the, like, I'm dying, blown. dying of AIDS. You assumed you had hepatitis, too, hepatitis C, I yeah, yeah, I had a lot of pains going on down here. I looked really, really, really bad. I mean, you can see on the cover of my book. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And, like, the abscesses on your face. Yeah, but the funny thing is, is that was when I still had a girlfriend and a few bucks. Like, uh-huh. this so was... this That was, was your attractive period? No. I was a lot worse. worse. Yeah. Dwayne is Dwayne, the only how one... bad could he look? A lot worse than that. Um, Dwayne's the only one that can actually verify that this was this was good. See the cigarette tucked behind my ear and the smirk on my face. People think this was the bottom. This was. And you were even... maybe shaving because you didn't have a long like Jesus beard. Yeah. This was taken at Spencer Recovery Center in the year two thousand, maybe two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. And I had some fight left in mm-hmm. me. I mean, I, I still had semi a Semi smile? Yeah, semi smirking. I was 109 pounds, mm-hmm. but the filthy ringworm scabies, you know, teeth falling out of my head, blood coming out of every orifice, that came six months, eight months later. Were there long-term health? I assume you're not HIV positive. You nope. didn't get hepatitis C. Nope. You just got real lucky in that I got regard. real lucky... I would say it's a miracle that I didn't get either of those mm-hmm. diseases. There were definitely long-term effects. There was definitely long-term damage, and I didn't sleep right for years, um, not just months, for years. Mm-hmm. The bottom of my feet didn't turn pink again for months, just getting, you know, getting clean. Uh, most of the scars are gone, mm-hmm. and I've been really lucky about that, and I've done a lot about that, actually, at, like, a lot of dry brushing and taking collagen and silica and mother's milk colostrum, like goat colostrum. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I'm really, really into superfoods. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of long-term stuff. And, you know, the the thing that's frustrating now is like when I see somebody with 100 days and they're like, how did you get faith? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, God, you know, how much time do you have? Like, do you want to, I mean, do you want to have a seat? I actually did this with this guy the other day because it's like, you know, in the beginning, what kind of faith am I going to have when I'm 33 years old? I'm a high school dropout. I'm a convicted felon. I look like that. I'm just raw, emotionally, newly sober. And I'm supposed to develop this belief in a higher power. Like, well, interestingly, my, my experience was that's exactly how I got it was was just, you know, there was this thing I kept just trying to stop doing and my life, I revolved around it and it was all I thought about and I tried so many times and suddenly I sort of go to this place where they're telling me a couple things to do which are not really that radical in the yeah. whole scheme of things yeah. and suddenly I don't want to do it anymore. Like that so was- So that was your kind of- Yeah, I was like, well, that doesn't make logical sense and if it doesn't make logical sense, that has to be something spiritual. I didn't have like a, you know, yeah. light shining down from the heavens. I had, I had an amazing paradigm shift in, in uh, Pasadena Recovery Center, third day, fourth day, you know, the, the worst withdrawal of my life. But I did get on my knees and I did say, God, please take this hell away from me. Those are my exact words. I'm not sure why I use those words. But, and there was a, a, an immediate levity to my spirit. There was a, a heaviness that lifted and I definitely felt the presence of what I would consider God. However, tune in six months later when the novelty of being clean and sober has worn off. 
when I'm chasing around newcomer girls instead mm -hmm. of, you know, having a sponsor and doing step work and being of service, things would get bad. I would get what they call it's foxhole sounds right. Yeah, foxhole faith. I would get I would get that kind of like uh, oh God, please you know help me with this or help me get a job and then like and then it would work. Prayer would work, but then my ego would imme immediately come in and be like. Well, yeah, but how come everyone else owns a house? And how come everyone else drives a Range Rover? And how come everyone else has a girlfriend? And you're a loser and life has passed you by and you're never going to have a... Like, my head would talk to me like mm -hmm. that. Even while I slept, my head would talk to me like that. So my faith and my de my development in faith was definitely definitely accumulative. Mm -hmm. it, happened over, it happened over a long, sustained period of time. The one thing I never stopped doing though was praying. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because I was so desperate. Mm -hmm. I prayed, I still like, I can't help like before each meal, I will not help, not like it's a bad thing, but I will pray before each meal. Out loud? No, I close my eyes and I, and I bow my head and I fold my hands. I think I'm just sort of imitating what they taught us when I was a kid in school. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm supposed to wear a turban or put a dot on my head or get on the ground with a mat. I'm not sure what the correct protocol would be for me and my ethnicity or whatever weird blood is pumping through my veins right now. But I think it's just for me, keep things simple, you know? Yeah. So, so, um, God, please help me. God, please hold my hand. God, please walk me through this day. Mm -hmm. If I get anything beyond that, if I start thinking I know the right prayers or books to read or chants to chant, then I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I turn into somebody who I don't want to be. I don't ever want to think that I have this God thing figured out or yeah. that I've cornered the market. And I also believe, speaking of the blood that runs through my veins on both sides and my adopted religion of Christianity, any of those people, once they became convicted, once they had strong convictions that their God was the right God, they immediately started killing other people in the right. name of their God. Right. Yeah. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to have any conviction. Whoever your God is, I'm pretty sure we're praying to the same God. Yeah. Even if you do use a prayer mat or a turban or a cross or a star or whatever your jam is, I'm pretty sure we're praying to the same God. Right, right. And yeah, it does seem antithetical to any form of spirituality to be judging, yeah. let alone killing people over a belief a different way of yeah. connecting but okay so back to your story though so how far into your sobriety did you know so when did you guys when did you open riviera 2007 so you got sober in 2003 so yeah to june 18 2003 and then and then you know the spiritual experience came slowly yeah and through that you were a, you did you work how many treatment centers did you go to spencer recovery center was just a brief five days, seven days, and I ended up jumping out of the second story window and, and running away and merging with the night. Um, and my girlfriend at the time, her parents hired an extraction specialist named Warren Boyd. Do you know Warren? No. Oh, he's awesome. He's really, we ended up becoming friends years later. What's an extraction specialist? Uh, when, when really nice girls get hooked up with really awful guys like me uh, like a cult programmer for relationships i i think yeah he wasn't that sophisticated but he definitely he you know warren yeah yeah he he would like go into meth labs and pull out daughters whose fathers own fortune 500 companies right stuff like that right so they took her and she had all the you know the bank account was in her name the car was in her name everything was in her name so 
I became insta homeless mm-hmm. and not not you know I often talk about this not homeless like where we're living in a shack but homeless like where you're Park. fucked for life and it's over right and there is no there is no nothing there is no turning back once you get sucked into that void that San Julian county jail seizures sharing needles you know that's it you're 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 in hell and so and it was at it was at PRC that you got sober yeah it was at PRC Bob Forrest saved my life Bob Forrest convinced Buddy Arnold to pay for me uh, they had a charity called Musicians Assistance Program yeah. or in my wow. case yeah. failed musicians assistance right. program and uh, I, we made some music. We made some good music. But what did you play? I sang. You were the lead singer. I, I was, of course. And Dwayne, guitar. Amazing. Nice. Amazing nice. guitar player. One of the greatest guitar players in the world. And now that he's sober. Well, he he's still actually... one of the greatest guitar players well, in the so world. So imagine now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I've seen him sober. I've seen him play in front of, you know, 20,000 people. And he's unbelievable. He's one of the greatest guitar players. Were you in a big band that I'm ignorant about? But you were still playing in front of twenty thousand people. He was in some bands, but okay. He's Dwayne's a little modest. Yeah. His ego hasn't gotten going. And Dwayne's actually yet. played in front of over a hundred thousand people because I saw him when I was in my twenties, and he was a little kid. He was like fifteen or sixteen, playing, playing in front of, I think a couple hundred thousand people. But we're not going to go into that because yeah, is... Dwayne will have to come on separately when he's like eight or so. Yeah. So I was the lead singer. I was the, I was the. Uh, you know, self-engrossed, typical, like, emulating Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain. Every every band that I loved was some idiot guy that ended up... Dying at 27. Yeah, killing himself or overdosing and accidentally dying. Like, that was my whole jam. I found that whole notion very romantic. I, 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 I was obsessed with, you know, like, um, Manson-type people, you know, really into the whole Charles Manson, Jim Jones, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, um, basically just like as, as, as stupid and ignorant and dark and dark and self-indulgent as you can get. I mean, I was a real fucking idiot and um, just cute enough and charming enough to where I could get away with shit. Um, halfway decent voice. The songs were awesome, but he was, you know, I had him helping me write mm-hmm. the music. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, we kind of got to live like rock stars, even though I was not a rock star. So Map helped you out. Map helped me out, yeah. Map put me in PRC. And then Map put me in uh, Thelma and Will's place, which was in the Deep Valley uh-huh. called New Perceptions. And Matt paid for that, and they gave me $40 a week to live on. And uh, then this biker guy, Baron, uh, let me come and uh, sleep on his sofa for a few months. And, you know, I I did the right thing in early sobriety. I found an older woman who was really pretty with a lot of money, and I moved in with her. Nice, nice. So that was a bit of a pattern. (laughs) I mean, she was too old to have her dad come in and uh, get an extractor to take her away from you. Exactly, exactly. No, no, no. I mean, I'm kind of being facetious and funny, but I'm kind of not. I mean, there was a beautiful girl that I met that was a few years older than me. Um, that she was sober, I was sober. She was getting over a really bad divorce, and I was getting over the consequences of raising myself and paying back 
all the expenses, the high cost of, of low living, so mm-hmm. to speak. I was in a bad spot. She was in a bad spot, but in a good spot financially. And mm-hmm. it, it just worked. I mean, you know, it worked. And then eventually someone said, you got to become self-supporting through your own contributions. And I started to, this guy named Daryl Cobb um, gave me my first job, and which is weird because he does a lot of work for me today. Mm-hmm. He helps me build all the tables and furniture that are in oh, my... Okay, so was it construction, putting, making furniture kind well, of thing? Well, no, I could, I mean, he would just hand me like a shovel or like a paint roller because I was incapable of doing mm-hmm. anything. I was physically shot out. Um, but then my mom got sick mm-hmm. and uh, and I wasn't able to go back and visit her. And I wasn't able to help her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was when the major paradigm shift happened. That was when I was like, wow, I am truly a piece of shit. I am truly like the worst, like forget about life passing me by. Forget about like some of the things I did to survive on the streets. If your mom's sick and you can't help her. You can't even go visit her and, and hold her hand or whatever. I bottomed out in sobriety. That was that was when I bottomed out. I was about nine months, eight and a half, nine months sober. And um, this guy, Sean, was letting me live in the guest house of his house that he was building. So it was under construction. And again, no running water, no electricity, mm-hmm. but whatever. I had, a, I had a place to stay. And, and my sponsor got me a membership at, at the local gym. So I had a place to steam and shower mm-hmm. and all that. But I went back to that guest house and, uh, and I just laid on the floor and, and just cried and cried and cried and, and I just, I came to the realization in that moment, I was like, I'm never gonna feel like this again. I'm never gonna feel like this again. I'm gonna be fucking rich. I'm gonna take care of my mom. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care, if I have a kid someday and he wants to go to school, I'm gonna have money. Like, I was so adamant and emotionally tied up in that paradigm shift and all of the old Tony Robbins shit started to come back to me. And then the guy, strangely enough, that was cutting my hair had some Tony Robbins uh, CDs. Am I dating myself? Mm. Um, At least they weren't tapes. Right. Well, originally they were. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm like, how do you have all, how do you have all those CDs? And he's like, oh, I cut Tony's head, mate. And mm. I'm like, well, are you kidding me? And he's like, no. And I'm like, is he real? And he's like, well, yeah, he's an actual person. I'm like, no, no, no. Like... You know what I mean, Matthew. His name is Matthew. I'm like, is he is he is he really what he says he is? And he's like, in what sense? And I'm like, like, does he love his wife? Does he love his kids? Is is that real? He's like, oh, he's like, you have no idea. He's like, he's the greatest man I've ever met. I go to his house in Sun Valley. I've been to his island. I've hung out with his wife and kids. Like, he's the most amazing human being. I'm like, can I please borrow those? And he's like, of course. And he gave them to me, and I just fucking took off. I, I like, I listened to that shit. Not Sean Landon got an iPad for Christmas. I think he still gets one every year. And he let me have it, or Cindy let me have it because Sean didn't need it. And I listened to that stuff. You know, Power of Now, Think and Grow Rich, Tony Robbins, Hour of Power. I just started putting in every moment of every day something positive, something. Someone told me whatever you put in is whatever you're going to get out. So if I sit around all day and talk about how cool it was to get high, I'm going to go get high. Mm -hmm. If I sit around all day and talk about how I'm never going to get a girlfriend and my life sucks and everyone else has everything, then I'm going to sit my own shit, Mm -hmm. right? But if every single day I do these affirmations and I do these walks and I put myself into these peak states, which is what Tony talks about, if I continue to do that every single day, sooner or later, shit's going to change. My life's going to get better. And man, my life 
my life took off. Now, not took off in the sense that like, oh yeah, I became this rich guy. Like, no, I got a job walking dogs. I got a job washing cars. I got a job at a treatment center. I got a job at another treatment center. Um, this woman, Pietra, hired me to teach her little boys how to boogie board. Mm-hmm. Paid me 40 bucks an hour to teach the little boys how to, how to boogie board. And like, I just went at it 20 mm-hmm. hours a day. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I just went at it and I saved every penny. So that, so because I know what your question was, is how do you go from a penniless 109 pound loser junkie to opening up a business in Malibu? I saved every penny and I was living at the house because the couple that owned it felt sorry for me. And the guy that owned the house, I said, can you just tell your wife, I know you guys are gonna leave. I know you wanna sell the house, but like if I could pay you 10 grand a month, would you let me rent it? If, if, you, if you gave me three months free and I fixed it all up, would you let me rent it from you? This is, wait, the same, which house is this? Same house. Okay. The Riviera Recovery's in. He okay, wait there. a minute. And so I live there. Where were you getting the 10 grand a month then? I didn't have 10 grand a month. You'd... I had saved up 70,000, I think, over uh, four years. Mm-hmm. I ate at work. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't spend a penny. And maybe fifty thousand, sixty. I don't know, but I, I had enough money to start paying them in ninety days. Was the agreement? I'm like, give me the first three months for free, mm-hmm. and then I will start paying you in ninety days, and I'll pay you ten thousand a month. They didn't think I was going to do it. They were just stoked that somebody was paying their house and trimming the hedges, and like I fixed that place up with the goal of opening it as a treatment Absolutely. center. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was already doing odd jobs and yard work around mm-hmm. the house, but now I went at it. Mm-hmm. Now I grabbed the tools out of the garage and I cleaned that whole property up and I painted the walls and cleaned the windows and there was a furniture company. I can't remember the name of the furniture company, but I had the worst credit and they wouldn't rent me furniture and I literally just kept asking for a supervisor. Can you, you know, can, I, I went all the way up to like, I don't know if it was the owner of the company, mm-hmm or like somebody who was in charge and I was like practically sobbing. I'm just like, please, my life depends on it. I I have to open up this business. I've painted the house. I don't have money for furniture. Please, can you rent me the furniture? And they they ended up renting me the furniture. They were just like, I can't can't take another call from this guy. Oh, they, you know what? As in many times in my life, whether it was Buddy Arnold sitting in MAP, like he just wanted me to shut up. He's like, if you stop talking, I'll pay for your treatment. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, he's like, stop. (laughs) <laughs> so I just didn't take no for an answer. And mm-hmm. I, I rented the furniture and um, and I got my friends uh, to help me out. Carrie's brother, mm-hmm. Chris, helped me a lot. And, uh, and yeah, we opened Revere Recovery. And the idea was to not just house people, but to truly love them, to really care about them. I was going to live with them, eat with them, exercise with them, do yoga with them. I was going to do all the things that had helped me. I was going to do it with the clients, and I did. And that's where you started the juice, uh, Wolverine, right? Not right away. We definitely bought a juicer and an extractor when we could. We opened it up, and one of the treatment centers just filled up the house for me. Mm-hmm. It's like a bunch of money came in, like mm-hmm. a, like a shitload of money came in. I'm like, oh my god. Wait, because it's because they had already graduated from from. They were re- getting out, and they didn't have a treatment center. I'm right, sorry, they oh, didn't sober, have a living. sober living. You got to remember, I was the, I was the second sober living in Malibu. This was 2007. Yeah, I mean, Promises had a place, and I think Soba had just started. But yeah, uh, wow, yeah. 
And so... I was an early adapter, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sure has become the booming business. Yeah, but I never started it for a business. I started it because I saw that... I kept hearing that 95% of people that come into 12-step programs relapse within the first year. And out of the 5% or 3% that make it, 90% of them go out in the second year. And I'm like, something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. Something is clearly wrong with our our system. And I'm not bashing 12-step programs. They saved my life. They're incredible. I continue to go to this day. But like, how come so many people are relapsing? Right. And, and a lot of people will try to use that as evidence that 12-step doesn't work. Right. Not understanding that... You know, no one thing can be the answer. The, I, I, my experience was it saved my life, too. Yeah. But it is not the only thing I do. And yeah. I realized that about a year in, that, yeah. that I that was not going to Well, here, so, so, like, I'm going to give you a perfect example. Here, here's an amazing young man, talented, you know, great-looking guy, newly sober, right? What I have sort of pitched him on the idea of is this he's not a big fan of meetings as, mm-hmm. as many people mm-hmm. that are newly sober aren't and I just said look you go to meetings it's like if you if you have cancer you do chemo if you have diabetes you do your insulin shots whatever that's how I look at 12 steps not not like it's some punitive thing but I mean it's a necessary means of survival but you don't have to be in love with it to enjoy it mm-hmm. but here's what I do know if you don't feel good for a long enough period of time and by you, I mean you, or me, or you, if you don't feel good for a long enough period of time, unless your program is bulletproof and stellar and you're sponsoring 15 guys and you've got a sponsor and a grand sponsor, that whole model works for many people. It was not, that was not for me. Mm-hmm. I had to feel great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel good for a long enough period of time, you're going to get high. Mm-hmm. You feel like shit for the next three weeks straight, you're going to go get high. I know you, mm-hmm. right? If I felt you know bad in my early days of recovery for a long enough period of time. I don't care how many meetings I was going to. I'm selfish. Mm-hmm. I didn't get high and end up like this because someone touched my naughty spot. I got high because it fucking felt great. Mm-hmm. I got high because I was awake. I got high because I was somehow manipulative enough to not have to go get a job and I could sit around and nice people like you guys would loan me money for for drugs or mm-hmm. buy drugs from me or whatever my hustle was at the time like I got hags it fucking felt great so well and another thing about being new and not feeling good um you know three weeks in is you don't have the experience to know that a lot of this stuff passes and the best thing about you know whatever being an old timer or whatever it is is not that the pain gets less you know sometimes the pain is intense but you have well, I have hundreds of times of seeing it pass yeah and getting that it's ephemeral and getting that you know because my alcoholic brain will tell me this is the way it's always going to be right you know well i didn't understand again going back to you know not being smart or not being that bright i didn't understand for a long time that if you have a feeling or if you have a thought that you're you're that you don't have to do it i didn't know that i know that normal people know that but I literally would think if all of a sudden I thought, well, I should just go, I'll just go smoke it. I won't shoot it. Or I'll just go, you know, whatever rationalize, minimalize, justify that the weird alcoholism. It's this amazing, cunning, baffling, and powerful. I just thought that like, I have a girlfriend. There's a pretty girl. Pretty girl likes me. 
I would, my mind is telling my body to go, you know, have sex or whatever. Like, I didn't understand that you could make a conscious decision and say no and do right. the right thing. Right. I know that now at 13 and a half years sober, but I didn't know in my early sobriety that if the urge to get high came on strong enough that I didn't necessarily have to listen. And I had a physical dependency on opiates, a physical, it wasn't like, some moral dilemma with me like my fucking body had to have opiates and cocaine just to pick up a phone and make a make a phone call or just to um you know just to walk to the bus in the morning with my change in my hand i would have to stomp all over my cottons and and suck up some dirty water and shoot it in my vein just to get out of fucking bed that's the type of physical dependence I had. So I knew damn well, I better find a way to feel fucking great fast. And some old junkie told me the way that he used to get over withdrawal was jumping in the ocean and then laying on the beach in the, on the hot sand, that somehow that created natural endorphins in your system. And so in sobriety, when the cravings came, and they came like a fucking freight train. I was shooting you know, four or five grams of heroin a day mixed with cocaine. When those cravings came and they were bad enough, I would, me and this guy Frank Humphreys, oh, I'm not supposed to say he's like, oh, he doesn't fucking care. He's an archeologist now, he's not gonna care. Mm -hmm. um, me and this guy Frank would drive out to Malibu because we were staying deep, deep in the valley and we would go jump in the ocean and then lay on the hot mm -hmm. sand and jump in the ocean and lay on the hot sand over and over again and I gotta tell you, it just felt great. And then we would use a lot of gallows humor, mm -hmm. a lot of inappropriate, you know, he, I would make, he'd make fun of me for being Arab or Polish, tell me I'm dumb. And then I would make fun of him for being Mexican and we would laugh. And sometimes a Jewish guy would come along with us and we would tease him about being Jewish. And I mean, it just, it just went round and round and it was very, you know, there was obviously no ill intentions behind any of that stuff, but, um, I think if anybody would have recorded our conversations, maybe they would think yeah. otherwise, but we use a lot of gallows humor. Um, and then as soon as I could, as soon as I could afford it, I started to incorporate healthy stuff into my life, healthy fats. As broke as my mother was, she would send me B vitamins. Remember my mom used to send me all the vitamins, B vitamins and I don't even know, fish oil mm -hmm. and all that stuff. and Like collagen. And yeah, and I just would start to feel better and feel better. And Robbie, my sponsor, got me a membership at that gym. And so I started doing the saunas for 20 minutes and then taking the ice cold showers and then the sauna. And then I would take the dry brush and scrub my body and it would hurt so bad. And I would take niacin, mm -hmm. I would stack niacin mm -hmm. and just feel... I could see myself getting younger and looking better each day that went by, and the effects accumulated along with my faith in a, in a, in a power greater than myself, and um, hard work, hard, hard work and staying busy mm -hmm. and supporting myself, and then ultimately getting to Open Revere Recovery, and yes, it was a business, and yes, we had bills to pay, a lot of them. Remember the rent was 10 grand and the right. utilities and the cable bill was like $1,500 a month somehow. I think those kids were watching porn or something. Um, anyway. Um, Let's hope. They needed something. Yeah. So I was able to, and I think real hardcore 12-step people would get mad at me for saying this, 
but I was of service. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I was of service in that business. Not, not look, not when I'm urine testing them and not when I'm making sure they're in their bed at night, not when I'm, you know, dealing with their parents or whatever. But like when I had some free time and I was going to go to the beach or I had some free time and I was going to go to third street promenade and go, you know, look at pretty girls or whatever, you know, thing I would do to sort of soothe my aching soul. And I would take them with me. I was being of service. Mm-hmm. I was modeling healthy behaviors and I went above and beyond, I think, what most people would do that were working in, in treatment, um, if I can be so bold and presumptuous and maybe even arrogant to say that, but I really did. I went above and beyond. And you can read in my book about some of the people that I worked with that were like me, that were never going to get better. And those people today are like just doing so amazing at life and have such rich, full. I just went I just went to Europe. I just went to Italy. A friend of mine is on tour and we went to go see his band in Italy and Paris and we stopped in Monaco and I was with a guy I actually helped many, mm-hmm. many years ago and eight years ago to be exact. And this is a true story. I mean, I'm not going to mention his name because it's not appropriate, but it's actually... I'm yeah, sorry. I shed. That, that, that's There's okay. literally one of my hairs on the microphone. That's it's okay. disgusting. Um, he, we went to Monaco and the guy, the guy won like millions of dollars. I mean, it was, it was like one of the coolest things ever. And not, and not that like... What do you mean gambling? He was playing poker. He was playing poker and he won millions of dollars. He won $3 million to be exact. Yeah, okay. And, and again, we'll, we'll keep him anonymous, yeah. but... He's in a big band. Well, yeah, okay. So that's No, no, why. no, not that guy. Oh. No, no, no. We we saw him. He didn't go to Monaco. No, my other buddy. So let's not tease the listener with information we can't tell them. Oh. Okay, but let's also we have to wrap up. Oh. So let's Shit. Yeah, yeah. So let's fast so Riviera Recovery's going. You're discovering that these the juices you're making are helping the clients a lot. The smoothies, the superfoods, the vitamins, all the stuff now that I was starting to incorporate into my life, I'm incorporating in their life. And uh, I started to see miraculous results. I started to see this one guy in particular that we're talking about. I mean, he just just started to look great and feel great. Um, Another girl that was there that had lost her kids, she got her, you know, she got her kids back. She started to look great. Um, She went through the interferon it worked. She got rid of the hep C. Like I started to see all these miraculous things happening in the area of health and wellness. And then I also saw a lot of people coming in that had no interest in wanting to be sober at all. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have appropriate boundaries to like throw them out or like call them on their shit. That's what I'm saying like about Jose, you know, running the business 10 times better than I ever could. Like he had a lot of professional training and he brought with him a wealth of knowledge and experience. So when he took over Riviera Recovery, he ran it the way it's supposed to be run. And not that I didn't help a bunch of people, but there was also a lot of people that were there that sort of slid underneath the radar and just would take the piss out of me on a regular basis. Mm. So I started getting really frustrated with Riviera Recovery. And I just got this, had this like dream to open up like a little smoothie shop that would have juices and vitamins and all that stuff. And the economy was horrible. It was 2011. There was six vacancies at the Point Dune Plaza, and I was just like, I don't care. I'm I'm gonna do this. And uh, and a, a friend of mine who I just went to Europe with mm-hmm. loaned me a couple hundred thousand dollars. I had about fifty thousand dollars in 
gold bullion, mm-hmm. old gold coins that I had bought and squirreled away. Mm-hmm. And back, okay, I'm not even going to ask how that happens. Uh, but when I was a sober companion, when I was teaching kids how to boogie board, when right. I was working at the canyon, when I was working at the, I worked. Yeah, twenty hours a day, seven days a week. And they were in. You just happened to save your money in these like gold. I was paranoid about the economy collapsing, which it did. Uh-huh. I had a sponsee who kept telling me, like, the economy is going to collapse. The economy is going to collapse. Buy gold. Buy gold. Buy gold. One of our good friends, actually. And so... And I bought gold. And so you used that plus the loan, opened opened Sunlight Sunlight. Organics. Yeah. Yeah. And it, was it thriving from the... It, 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 like, went parabolic. Like, it went... Just like when Riviera Recovery opened and just filled up immediately, Sunlight Organics had a line out the door the day we opened. And how and many are there now? There's six now. There's two more being built. Uh huh. So um, we'll have we'll have nine or ten of them within the next eighteen months. And what is different about the juice there? It's organic. Number mm-hmm. one, it's served in glass bottles. Number two, um, it's made by locals. So I hire a lot of local people. Mm-hmm. Um, I hire only local people. The intention, just like with, with Riviera Recovery, the intention was I'm going to serve, and I'm going to serve in an authentic way, a, a way that is genuine. And here's the thing. I mean, it's with regular people too, but with drug addicts especially, or alcoholics, whatever you want to call them, I think it's the same thing. Um, you, can't, you can't hustle those people. Right. If, if your shit's not real... They're going to know it's not real. Right. And with regular people as well. You know, the, the people in Malibu are a very sophisticated crowd that have traveled the world, that have their own private chefs, that have this incredible sense of discernment. So there was no way you could bullshit them. Right. If you were serving them shit, they would know you were serving them shit and they wouldn't come back. We were serving them a superior product. We had no idea what we were doing. The wait was 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And a lot of these people were like, you know, movie stars or big producers or whatever, and they sat there patiently and they waited. I don't think we could have opened in any other town in this country and survived. Mm. I think if we tried this in New York or Chicago, anywhere, I think people would have just walked out the door frustrated and like, these these people are idiots. I had cuts on every one of my fingers, Band-Aids, double-gloved, you know, just, again, working 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, frantically, maniacally, um... But we did it. We did it. We, we, we served. We served from our heart and mm-hmm. we served with the intention of serving. It was never about opening a business. It was that there was no place like Sun Life Organics. So I made one. There was no place like Riviera Recovery. So I made one. I had read a lot of drug memoirs that people fabricated shit. And I'm like, why would you have to fabricate? Look at this fucking picture of me. Right. Like, look at, look at my mug shots in here. Or better yet, Look at look at the picture of the house I bought my mom. Right. You know? How about how about that for a great book? That's that's the house I bought my you mom. You guys have to buy the book in order to see the house. It's um opposite page ninety seven. So I I wrote that book because I didn't see other books out there that were easy to read and not written with the intention of shocking people. My story was shocking enough. The type of shit that happens to you when you're homeless and you're living on the streets it's shocking enough you don't have to use sensationalism you know you want to experience some really dark shit that makes a great book or movie go get locked up in the twin towers of downtown los angeles right and then go make your movie right so i wrote that book because there wasn't 
a book out there like that. And uh, so Sun Life Organics took off. I have a brilliant partner who's super smart. And I'm not trying to be cheeky or funny or feign humility when I say I'm not that bright or I'm not smart. I am 1,000% living proof that you do not have to be smart to be a great success. Hmm. I'm a high school dropout. I'm a convicted felon. I cannot type. I cannot spell. I can't even manage to tie my shoes some days because I'm so you know, wound up and frustrated and you know, not being in the present moment and stuck in the minutia. My partner's the opposite. My partner's fucking brilliant. She's beautiful, she's brilliant, and she helped me build both of those businesses. She helped me to open Malibu Beach Yoga, which I also own, mm -hmm. and she wrote that book with me. Oh, she did, she okay. Did. She, as we were breaking up, after nine years, we were in the process of breaking up and I was moving out, we wrote that book together. Well, she wrote, I paced back and forth drinking coffee or just laying on the sofa holding my stomach, moaning and groaning. Mm -hmm. And she frantically typed and then edited. And then Neil Strauss, the great Neil Strauss. Yeah, I know Neil. Yeah, the, wrote uh, The Game. The Game and many other books. The Truth. Neil Strauss, like many, many amazing people that live in my community, I think just felt sorry for me and wanted to help me. And he took the book and he went through it and he would cross out entire pages or paragraphs and he would say, stop telling me and show, show me. Yeah. Stop telling me and show me. And it hurt. Every time I would read that, I'd go, no, I don't want to. And then Haley would say, let's do it. Come yeah. on. What happened the night that you flatlined? You can't just say that that was the night that you flatlined. Neil said, we have to show him. Let's show him. Right. So right. I went into it. We were at so-and-so's house, and we were with this person. Yeah, and yeah. That's what I always tell my writers for the site, too. It's like, it, take us into the moment. Like, we, we don't want to hear. We, we want infused in it your retrospect the, yeah. from where you sit right now. But take us through it. And my, I actually did an edit on Emergency. No Neil's way. book. Yeah, he thanks me in it for it. Oh, my um, God. What a small world. Yeah, Holy kind shit. of, and yet not, you know. Okay. I mean, I guess since he's not in the recovery world, it, it, the recovery yeah. world is so small. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised that we would know similar people there, but it's, it's you know. He's not in recovery. No, no. It's just an but, incredible Oh, thing. I guess he is. I guess his new book is about that. Well, not, a different type Not of addiction recovery. and uh, yeah. not alcohol. Great book. Have you read it? I haven't. You got to read it. person. I can get you a copy. Okay. I, I sell them at my stores. I bet I can get a copy oh, yeah. in other places, oh. like like any bookstore. But so, And so you, speaking of, so were you, did you start by just selling the book out of out of Sun Life? And then... Um, no, there's a company called Book in the Box. Oh, yeah, the Tucker Max. One of my employees who's yeah. in recovery, single mother, she said, uh, she texted me. She said, hey... You know how you're always talking about wanting to write a book? This is right around the same time that I met Neil. She said, there's this company that will write the book for you, which is sort of true and sort of not true. They will interview you and they will give you a frame, but you have to then put up the drywall, the carpets, the roof, the... Well, yeah, because if, if your partner was doing the writing, so don't they send a ghostwriter to... No. So they, they had this really awesome guy named Jeremy. I can't think of what Jerry's la Jeremy's last name was, but Jeremy interviewed me. Then they put it all down in transcripts, and then he put it together in a cohesive format. Then Haley and I took that, and we rewrote it six times. So, But you could have taken the Jeremy version, but you just wanted it more... If I would have taken the Jeremy version, it would have been Jeremy's book. Mm -hmm. And not the, and Jeremy's a great writer. Jeremy writes books, mm -hmm. but it wasn't authentically 
and not no fault of his, but it wasn't in my voice because it wasn't penned by me, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Jeremy didn't have the luxury, or probably not a luxury, probably a fucking nightmare, but Jeremy didn't have the ability to sit with me for months and months and months and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and have somebody as fucking brilliant as Neil Strauss doing it. Yeah. So how many times? So he just interviewed you once, basically? Jeremy interviewed me six times, two hours each time Mm -hmm. for Book in the Box. Mm -hmm. Then Book in the Box delivered what they promised they would deliver, which, as you said, could have been sold on Amazon Mm -hmm. as a book. For me to put something out there and do that anti-selfie on the cover Mm -hmm. and to really bare my soul to everyone and not not in a way that, oh, I don't have any boundaries, so I'm going to tell you all my gnarly stories. I did it in a way where like, I'm gonna tell you everything that happened to me because I want you to know that no matter how bad you think your life is and no matter how shitty the story you keep telling yourself in your head over and over again, woe is me, this happened to me, that happened to me, I'm from this town, this is what I went through, this is the disease I have, whatever whatever story you're telling yourself, you can stop at any time. Right, right. And I didn't know that until 2005 when Robbie, I talk about him in the book, when Robbie said to me, you know, stop fucking talking about using. Stop talking about drugs. Like what? That's all you talk about. You talk bad about everybody. You character assassinate everybody that you come into contact with. And you always talk about drugs. Mm. This is, I'm two years sober when he's yelling at me. And he said, who would you be if you dropped your story? Right. I was speechless for the first time in my life. He goes, answer me. Who yeah. would you be if you dropped your story? And I started crying. I'm like, I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, think about it. Figure it out. Because your story fucking sucks. Let it go. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I went in my room and I cried all night. And I... I really thought about that and that became a major part of my recovery was letting go of my sad little story. And by the way, it was maybe six months later, a year later, I was watching a documentary on Oprah Winfrey, who I, I don't know why, I'm always fascinated with her as a kid and I always like watching it. The she, one that was on OWN when it launched? I think so, but it was her about what the shit that she went through. Uh-huh. I watched that and I cried and I cried and I cried mostly because I had spent 35 years or more going around telling everybody this sad fucking story and telling myself this sad fucking story about what I went through. My parents were immigrants and I was molested and my dad beat my mom. Who fucking cares? Right. Most people go through bad shit. Right. Here's this woman born black at a time when being born black really was not in your favor in a part of the country where being born black was not in your favor struggled with weight issues raped by her uncle or her cousins or whatever it was like her story made my story seem like a walk in the park and here she was helping a billion people this woman has helped a billion people myself included and her story is way gnarlier so then it was like Sorry, buddy, you got no excuses. Right. Tough shit. You went through some bad shit. My parents went through shit in their childhood that would turn our fucking stomachs inside and out. My father was in Palestine when the United Nations gave back the land to Israel. And 
became a refugee in his own country and then got taken in by the Jordanians and like lived in a in a tent mm-hmm. went from living in an and I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong who knows that war's been going on been going on for thousands of years and it's not my place to say who's wrong or who's right but what my father went through what my grandfather went through it was some bad shit to go from living on an olive orchard that my grandfather who worked in the British Postal Service his whole life and when he retired he bought this olive orchard and now all of a sudden they're living in a tent not a real fun thing when you're 12 years old and my mother was dropped off on a doorstep when she was four years old as the nazis invaded poland and eventually wound up in a work camp so like my parents went through horrible unspeakable shit oprah went through horrible unspeakable shit yeah i had a tough childhood but but so what that was three and a half decades ago and so again came the paradigm shift where it was like you know what i'm gonna rewrite my story and I'm going to make it a fucking great one. My life is going to be the type of life that someone's going to write a book about someday. That's what I used to tell people. My life's going to be the type of life that someone writes a book about. And I mean that in a great way. I'm going to do something that changes the world. I'm going to do something that's amazing. I'm going to touch people's lives. I'm going to inspire people. I'm going to take all that Tony Robbins shit and all that Oprah Winfrey shit and all that Think and Grow Rich shit, all that stuff that I put inside my head, and I'm going to turn it into something beautiful. Did I know it was going to be a, a, a smoothie empire or a yoga studio or a book that's now sold out on Amazon? No, I had no idea, and it didn't matter. But whatever it was, it beat the shit out of scoring some, some Coke and some heroin and shoving it in a spoon and shoving it in my arms because I was sad and because I had a bad childhood. It's just fucking stupid, and I almost missed all of this. Okay, well, that is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. So that was Khalil Rifati on After Party Pod. If you like this podcast, please go review it. In case you haven't already, please go buy Khalil's book. It's called I Forgot to Die. It's available on Amazon. As I say this, it's sold out on Amazon. By the time you hear it, hopefully there will be more copies in. Um, You will, and, and you can get it at Sun Life Organics. What an amazing guest. I'll see you next time.